You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I am an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, joining us uh, as usual uh, with these uh, unusual episodes to talk about the Middle Ages, uh, we have coming in from South Carolina, Jordan Poss, who, uh, like the Saxons, uh, is ferocious by nature, uh, or so uh, so we are told. Uh, Jordan, how are things in uh, South Carolina? Ferocious. See, instructor uh, of history at Piedmont Technical College, is that right? Yeah, bingo. Awesome. Uh, and not an instructor of history, but maybe equally ferocious, is uh, David Grubbs from Houston Baptist University. Uh, associate professor of English, is that it, David? Full professor uh, of English. Assistant. Assistant. I, don't, I haven't been here quite long enough to ascend. Fair enough. Uh, I so had a job transition. That, that that, that'll do it, yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, not as ferocious as he will be uh, yeah. when when that promotion comes in. It, it, it's like uh, it's like when Pokemon's evolve. I don't get that reference, but I'll assume that some of our listeners will. I mean, I, I know what I know that Pokemon exists, but oh. uh, that's that's the extent of my knowledge. And I know at some point people are awesome. like going to Fallujah to catch him, right? I mean, that was. <laughs> uh, there we go. So. Uh, Speaking not of Fallujah and not of Pokemon, but at least somewhat of the Saxons, uh, I have uh, talked uh, these uh, these two medievalists uh, out of England for the first time in this series, uh, at, uh, at at some uh, with some difficulty, talked them out of England uh, and across the channel into France, uh, where we're today going to be talking about Charlemagne. Does one of you want to uh, want to grab onto uh, just briefly the source materials for this? Uh, so we all read uh, for today. At some point in the past, we we have read. Uh, Einhard and Notker, do, uh, does either of you want to start by just giving us kind of a quick who are these guys? Yeah, I could do that real quick. Uh, so Einhard and Notker are um, two biographers that we have of Charlemagne. Um, Einhard is not only a contemporary of Charlemagne, he's a member of, member of Charlemagne's court. Um, so he personally knows Charlemagne, which is really interesting for a couple of reasons. Um where modern historians, you know, kind of like kind of like journalistic standards, are going to look for someone with a little bit of distance, uh, theorizing that the closer you are, the more you're going to be incapable of escaping bias. Uh, something we see in a lot of ancient and medieval sources is the idea that the closer you are, the more qualified you are because you've got the inside scoop, um, which is just a a difference of perspective. I I, um, I don't find anything in Einhard to suggest that he's not trustworthy obviously he takes a positive view of charlemagne but it's not like he's trying to <laughs> cover up the fact that he's hitler or something um 
Right. So he is not only contemporary, he is an actual personal acquaintance of Charlemagne. Uh, the second reason I find that interesting is because Einhardt's kind of boring, um, <laughs> at, least, at least in my uh, reading of him. Um, it, it's, it's full of information. Uh, I, I wrote on Goodreads after I was done rereading this that Einhard has the typically medieval love of lists. Uh, he likes lists of things. He likes going methodically through uh, Charlemagne's will. Uh, even he even has a section uh, in you know relating in laborious detail the system Charlemagne developed to assign Frankish names to the months of the year, um, which is which is interesting linguistically. But you know if you're if you're reading this for pleasure, it's uh, you might bog down there. Uh, it's it's a very very long paragraph to get through. Uh, so the other uh, the stammerer. Another one of those very flattering medieval nicknames. Um, Notker is a monk in what is nowadays Switzerland, uh, a somewhat out of the way but very well connected monastery that is mentioned a number of times in in both sources, I think, um, reflecting again the the interests of the authors. Um, but Notker is interesting because uh, his I, I found his very structurally interesting, and it was it was interesting as I read. I, I couldn't remember having read it before, so this may be actually my first time through it, which I don't know how that happened. Um, but it's, it's structurally interesting. He divides Charlemagne's life thematically in half and then kind of deals with separate things and separate sides. Uh, Notker's is, uh, despite having written somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 or 70 years later, uh, I believe during the reign of one of Charlemagne's grandsons, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. Uh, to whom he dedicates it and, and who he actually addresses kind of breaking the fourth wall a number of times uh, in the text. Uh, this one, despite the remove of a couple of generations, that Charlemagne actually has a very distinct personality, seems like a real person, and it is full of um, stories that I found suspiciously structured like folklore, but that nonetheless give a really a, – a generous amount of color – to the character of Charlemagne that you get from Einhard. I can see why these these two particular lives are anthologized together because they, they both have good, solid connections to Charlemagne, either through personal personal acquaintance or uh, not in the case of Notker, knowing people who know things, right, and having having that uh, connection because of uh, Charlemagne's connection to the monastery. It's a uh, Saint Gall, I believe, if I'm remembering that right. Um, there's lots and lots of other lives of Charlemagne, but I think these two anthologized together give you kind of a three-dimensional picture of Charlemagne. Uh, what they don't do, which we, I'm sure we can get into, is give you a blow-by-blow chronological narrative, um, which is also kind of typically medieval of these uh, what are usually called vidi, right, uh, lives, um, which tend to be more thematically organized than, you know, it's not the 800-page Churchill biography that I've got on my shelf over here. Uh, uh, David, what would you add to that? What have I goofed up or missed? Uh, I, I think there's things that we can bring out about each of them as we're delving into the story, because they both, um, uh, as you said, Einhard has this, uh, he's, he's got this interest in, in the, the particulars, the nuts and bolts, the lists, mm-hmm. as you call it. You can yeah. tell he's a bureaucrat. Yes, whereas Notker has all the – he's got all the gossip. He's got all the cool yeah. stories that are probably 
Um, I don't know. I hope they're not legendary, but are probably legendary. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, what my uh, one of my professors in college. Um, he he liked the phrase apocryphal. He said, "You know what an apocryphal story is, right? It's a le- it's a story that probably isn't true, but it should be." Yeah, yeah, that sounds um, that sounds right. Uh, one th- um, did you mention um, Einhard is a is a student of Alcuin? No, I did not. That's that's an important. And detail. Alcuin was a student of Bede. Yep. So uh, this first text, uh, you, you you tried to admit, take it. You, you can you can take us out of Saxon England, you can, but you can't take <laughs> Saxon England out of us. Coil. I knew we weren't going to get away from that. I, I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but Einhard is basically the the historian grandson of the venerable one himself. So yep. it's worth uh, it's worth noting the ways that. Um, this world that we're sketching out is is interconnected and not isolated. Right, and the uh, the the point of connection there is usually going to be the church, although in in this case it's uh, it's yeah. uh, the university, right? It's it's scholarship. Although well, I mean the church still is still the church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean Al- Alcuin. Well, well, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about Alcuin. Like he's he is not traveling as a priest or a monk, right? I I, I don't remember if he is one or not. That's that's not yeah. why uh, that's that's not why he goes to uh, to the the Frankish kingdom. Uh, but before we before we get to him, we should uh, we should start with uh, with where uh, Charles uh, Charlemagne's family comes on the scene. Uh, and I I, I think uh, probably beginning with Charles Martel is uh, the the right place to go. Even though he doesn't get much of a mention, uh, just a, a passing note in Einhard, and I I think he's passed over completely in in. Uh, in uh, in Notker's, uh, Notker's, although I'd have to go back and, and look and look more closely for that. Uh, so the uh, uh, as uh, as Einhard says that the uh, the Saracens invade uh, and the uh, uh, begin conquering Western Europe and they are stopped by uh, by Charles Martel. Uh, Martel uh, is not uh, the king. Uh, he is holding an, he holds an office called Mayor of the Palace. And I, yeah. I don't know that we're given a whole lot of details as to as to what that is exactly, but is my impression right? He's he's sort of a combination prime minister and steward. Is that a is that a way to put it? Yeah, or, I, th- I think that captures it well. Um, yeah. The probably the closest thing that you could find in, uh, you know, something that that our listeners might be familiar with, is the function of K as the seneschal in the in Arthur's court. Uh, it's it's a our modern a, listeners will definitely know what that is. Oh. <laughs> but but the idea is it's it's a domestic it's a it's a domestic term. It, it it refers to a way in which he is sort of supervisory over the household. But because it is the household of a king, it ends up having these other sort of broader um, political responsibilities and bureaucratic oversight is right, is yeah. kind of rolled up into that as well. Right, and and with yeah. this victory over these uh, uh, these Saracen forces, uh, there there is a a broader recognition that comes than may have otherwise come just from being mayor of the palace. Uh, such that uh, I think uh, I think this is still Einhard. Uh, the Pope declares his son Pep, Pepin the Short. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Pepin the Short uh, becomes king in the place of the. Uh, and I don't remember who he who he displaced. I think it's Childer. I think it's Childeric the Third. Childeric yeah. the Third. Yep, there we go. Childeric the Third. Uh, so uh, Pepin the Short becomes king uh, by the authority of the Pope, 
uh, in the place of Childeric III, which then queues up uh, his children to take the throne next, uh, Charlemagne and, and Carloman, uh, who, uh, interestingly, Einhard, uh, he doesn't put them on the throne by means of the Pope, although he does say they have divine right. Uh, he, uh, he puts them on the throne uh, by an election by the military. So the, uh, the, yeah. the, the army gathers together and votes uh, and, uh, and confirms them as the, the dual kings of the two parts of the kingdom. I will admit, I don't know what the two parts of the kingdom are. Like, I, don't, I don't know where that line would have been. Uh, yeah. But wherever it was, uh, Charlemagne and Carloman are, are the two kings. Carloman then dies, and Charlemagne takes over the, the, the whole thing. Uh, anything else you, you guys want to bring up about Charlemagne's background, uh, where he comes from, uh, his, his family, family tree there? Well, that the, that the Carolingian line displaces the Merovingian kings, the Childeric is the last of the Merovingians, um, which gives us an excuse as we're passing to hiss at Dan Brown. Huh. <laughs> any, any excuse, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the mechanics of Pippin's ascension to the throne, it's, it's by the, by the time of Charles Martel and Pippin, the office of Mayor Domus or mayor of the palace had had kind of turned into a I, I like the way you put it of like prime minister and steward where he does still have these kind of vestigial domestic duties but he's most of the executive power of the kingdom has sort of devolved upon him through through the control that the mayor of the palace has to the access of the king and through you know depending on which sources you read through the kind of dissipation and laziness of the Merovingians too um so the, the it, it's the old Germanic custom of having some kind of vote in regard to the king that puts Pippin on the throne and the, the Pope's support makes that official. You know, and, and so this, I point out to my students, this is kind of the first time that we're going to see something like this, but the 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 use of the papacy to give uh, like an official imprimatur to ascensions and uh, coronations is uh, going to be something that's becoming more, more and more and more typically medieval as we go forward. And uh, if, if listeners don't get the Cirque thing, uh, Zazu in The Lion King is... Uh, <laughs> yes. The, he says offhandedly he is the king's majordomo, and majordomo is another form of the term majordomus. So that, yeah. that usually clicks with my students, although <laughs> though then they start imagining Pippin the Short as Rowan Atkinson. Um, uh, <laughs> or John I Oliver. I mean, I, I I have not watched the new cartoon version of that cartoon because uh, I refuse to call that live action. Oh, and the uh, the other thing that I would point out is um, in the uh, dethroning of Childeric, uh, the 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 shift of dynasty there from Merovingian to Carolingian. Um, Pippin is obviously making a power play because he's the guy with the power, so why bother with Childeric anymore? Uh, but there's a there's a subtle change that you can kind of see in in the mere fact that Childeric is allowed to live. Uh, he is squirreled away in a monastery, which doesn't seem that nice. But again, the the even a couple of generations before uh, we we haven't talked about Chlodovic. Um, um, Oh, I've just completely blanked on his name. Um, first Christian Frankish king. Clovis? Uh, 
Clovis, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is this is where I'm at already this semester. Uh, even you know, just a few generations before Clovis, I mean, a, a regime change would have been accompanied by purges, probably. Uh, so you know, as as mitigated as some of that Christian influence is on the warrior culture of the Franks, you can at least see it in that Childeric is not murdered to get him out of the way. He is deposed legally and then put somewhere where he's allowed to live, you know, the rest of his life quietly and out of the way, um, which I, th I think is also kind of a a small but telling sign of some of the changes that are coming to medieval Europe in this uh, Germanic warrior culture, which uh, Einhard and Notker both take great pains to emphasize in the life of Charlemagne. Yeah, the uh, uh, this is this is a big, uh, not necessarily just this moment, but this practice of both the church confirming and the army voting on uh, in the, the political theory field. I mean, this, there, there, a lot of hay is, is made out of this uh, as, a, as a moment where legitimacy uh, is, is held in tandem between God and the people. So it's, it's not fully divine right of kings, but it's also not fully popular sovereignty. There's, there's this tension between both uh, right. that, that's, that's intentionally left in place. Uh, that, that's not really resolved uh, in the English-speaking world until the beheading of Charles the uh, First, and then in, uh, in on the continent whenever whenever each country has kind of its enlightenment moment. Uh, so uh, yep. there, there's uh, there, there's that there's that dual structure where authority comes down from heaven and it comes up from below, uh, and they they ought to work in harmony, and then you you run into the difficulties when they don't. The, yeah. the problem is when you have one side working against the other, uh, not God working against the people necessarily, but maybe the church working against what the people want, or the people working against what the church wants. Yeah. And by the by the people, of course, meaning the nobility, not necessarily, or, or every, the military, uh, right? Depending on yeah. Well, the the nobility and the military. That's that's the same thing in this world. Right. Um, that's that's what the nobility exists to do. And even even the word noble feels a little bit an, uh, anachronistic because um, this this is a world that structurally and behaviorally would not look that different from what you read about in Beowulf. Right. Um, I have a question. Like, I, I know that we very often connect the Franks back to that Germanic uh, template. Were the Franks ever federates? That's a really good question. Uh, I think they, they would have been towards the end, but I, I don't know yeah. that they, they would have been a minor... Because when I read that affirmation by the army, by the military. I wondered whether, it would, I, I, for whatever reason, I immediately went to the ways that every time there's a vacancy <laughs> in the imperial throne in Rome, um, some legion or other crowns its general. The, uh, the internet tells me that they were, uh, although again, it was, it was towards, the, <laughs> towards the tail end of the empire. Yeah, I was just looking at... Um... Tacitus's Germania for other reasons again the other day and the Franks are proximate enough to the Roman Empire to have been involved in that even before the Empire falls but they're not you know they're not like the Cherusci where they're like right on the border um, so you know between I was looking at it in the context of Arminius and Teutoburg Forest um, between the reign of Augustus and Romulus Augustus of course there's lots of water over the dam uh, and, and lots of migration so I, I would not I would not be surprised if the Franks had been at some point certainly the memory of Rome is still alive as Einhard and Notker also make clear yeah it, it, it's 
I, I, it's useful to recognize that while at the same time the Franks and you know Angles and Saxons over in you know occupying Britain uh, did have a lot enough sort of cultural similarities broadly that the exchange of brides, for instance, even before Christianization, the, the, the evangelization of England, um, was something that could take place. Mm-hmm. And the, the Angles and Saxons were in, in no way Romanized. They came from, you know, the, you know, the Saxon shore on the North Sea. They came from what is now Denmark. Um, they had that whole buffer of Germany between them <laughs> and, uh, and the rest of Rome. They weren't Romanized. But the Franks, they were in they were in that mix in late Western Rome in a way that the Angles and Saxons weren't. Right. Yeah. And they also, I, as as far as I think we can tell, I think the Franks also um, assimilated more to the pre-existing population of Gaul mm. when they moved in. Certainly, their native Frankish dialect is going to be subsumed by what yes. is eventually what is eventually going to become French, which is they very are- very. Like a major distinction between them and the Angles and Saxons is that the the you know Anglish <laughs> continues to be it becomes the dominant language in Britain and and continues to evolve with very very few Celtic loanwords, um, as opposed to again Frankish which disappears. Yeah, well, I, I, we could we could certainly talk about the uh, the Rome connection, uh, uh, if nothing else, with regard to the thing that happens in Rome. Uh, but before we get there, do we want to say anything about Charlemagne's kind of ascent to consolidation of the empire? Otherwise, I'm happy to jump straight to Christmas Day. I mean, Char- Charlemagne is a good Frankish king and does what good Frankish kings do, which he goes out to war every spring and fights whatever enemies have presented themselves. And he's good at it, and he reigns a very long right. time. Um, which, you know, when we did our Rome episodes, we talked about, I was just going over this with my students this week. We did our Rome episodes. We talked about how just the mere fact of Augustus reigning so long changed things. Um, Charlemagne's going to have a, a similar effect. So I mean, he's going to very, very deliberately, but also by dint of having done it for so long, consolidate his people underneath him uh, and uh, add to you know extensively add to the kingdom uh, in you know parts of Spain and of course uh, in Saxony, which we can probably talk about in uh, a little bit more right. detail. And I was interested, I, I mentally, I've, I've got a mental block, for whatever reason, against associating Charlemagne with the Vikings. But, of course, he is informed of the Viking invasion by Alcuin, right. Anglo-Saxon, or Anglo-Saxon connection. Uh, and I've behind me on my shelf, I've got English historical documents, which includes a whole bunch of letters from people in Britain to Alcuin at Charlemagne's right. court. So he's staying abreast of things that aren't even happening within his kingdom. And, of course, he uh, one, one of the two sources specifically, maybe even both, specifically mention his campaigns against the Northmen. Uh, but for some reason, I, I can't. I think about his war with the Saxons and just, just can't <laughs> remind myself that he lived long enough, you know, past 793 to have campaigned against the Vikings as right. well. Is that when Vikings... Is that, is that when Vikings sacked Paris? Right. I think that's later. Okay. It's going to be it's going to be a future king of France after after Charlemagne dies and divides the kingdom. Um, is it Charles the 
bald who uh, settles that deal with Rolver? Rollo? Yeah, my, my my Viking history outside of Scandinavia is very foggy and weak. <laughs> I've studied the Normans in the context of the Norman, okay. uh, Norman conquest, uh, but that's yeah. I think that's still a good ways off in the future. At least within Charlemagne's lifetime, they're still mostly sticking to hit and run raids. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's talk uh, what happens in Rome then. So, uh, uh, as a, as Will Cuppy says it, uh, Charlemagne went to Rome to celebrate Christmas and uh, turned his head, and while he wasn't looking, the Pope stuck a crown on it. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday! Uh, so, so uh, Charlemagne is crowned uh, Roman Emperor. Uh, what does that mean, and and why does it matter? Either of you want to uh, dive into well, that? It sort of means that he's compelled to defend Italy. Yeah, uh, that that's that's kind of his side of the promise, right? Or or uh, what he what he commits to, yeah. uh, which whether Italy actually needed defense, I think, is uh, uh, maybe more of an open question. And whether he could successfully do it from you know northwestern Europe is also kind of an open question. The Alps are hard to get around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the not that it stops the it, it is the Normans, right? Who who managed to uh, to to break through and. Uh, set up a kingdom there. Yeah, but I mean, I think they're coming by sea to you know Sicily and the the toe and the heel of Italy. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's uh, so if if I'm living in, we can't call it France, right? The the Frankish Empire of Charlemagne. I'm looking all around me and seeing these Roman ruins, uh, and maybe if I'm literate, I can read these these Roman sources, uh, and I can see things that I can't imagine how they were built. Uh, and I can read things that I know are abo- are beyond my ability to write, uh, describing things that I know I will never see, uh, and and things that you know uh, were basically created across this thousand year period. Uh, I think at least part of what Charlemagne's trying to do is is move back in that direction, right? Re- recapture some of the the lost glories of of this civilization thing. And maybe I'm just drawing too much on Kenneth Clark here again, but. Uh, uh, I think there is some idea that we we can't do that stuff, but we can take a step moving in that direction. There was still some of the stuff that they could do that they knew how to no. do, um, even before Charlemagne's rise. Um, the Franks preserved the art of uh, the the art of stonemasonry was preserved in Gaul. Um, they could build Roman style basilicas. Uh, they had glaziers, right? Because uh, the monastery that Bede grew up at, um, St. Paul's at Jarrow, and then it's uh, the the brother monastery of St. Peter's at Monk Wyrmouth, uh, they were built on the style of Roman basilica churches by Frankish masons, and the windows were made by Frankish glaziers. So there was... A, there was still like so, some of those things were preserved, um, m- maybe not to the point where they could, you know, just sort of toss off a Hagia Sophia. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but you know, th- there was still there was still some of that, uh, and and uh, Einhard and Notker do do refer to some of his building projects. Right. Yeah. Um, though sometimes it falls over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, 
Yeah, they they do mention his building projects. Is the Aachen Cathedral one of those? It is, yeah. Uh, yeah, there there is a present Aachen Cathedral, but it's a later Gothic renovation. Um, uh, yeah, we talked about this when we talked about Bede, but it's we want to make sure we don't overstress breaks in sure. continuity. There there is continuity, and a, a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is going to be in memory, which is not always much, but it's something. Right. Um, and of course, in scholarship, which Charlemagne takes a very active interest in, um, and I think if there's anything that comes across really clearly in both of these short vita, it's the sense of responsibility that Charlemagne has. Uh, he, t- he takes his responsibilities very, very seriously to the p- to the point in Notker of going out of his way to prank irresponsible people. Which is one of my favorite parts, where he's just co- kind of constantly playing these slick jokes on people who are uh, uh, unfit for their <laughs> unfit for their positions. Um, the yeah, it makes them all go out hunting in their in their in their festal best. Yeah, <laughs> which sounds which, again. A lot of these are structured like jokes, which makes me want to think that they're folklore. But at the same time, this sounds a hundred percent plausible. Uh, especially, you know, for a guy who is, is described as dressing pretty plainly most of the time, uh, just you know, for for comfort's sake. Uh, but the, the those items of continuity there too, in terms of learning. Uh, so we're we're seeing a little bit, you know, doing this following on from talking about Bede and talking about Alcuin, um, you know, this networking of knowledge. And Charlemagne is also communicating with the East, with the Byzantines, a lot more than you might expect. Uh, to the point of, you know, sending diplomats and, and trying to work out conflicts and things. Uh, and even in little details, it, it took me by surprise that for dinnertime entertainment, he had people read the City of God to him. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, which hints, again, at that continuity with classical learning, the growing theological interest. Uh, and it's it's something that is, uh, as they say on the inter- Internet, relevant to my interests. Right, uh, knowing knowing how properly to govern, and also what the limits of what a secular ruler can do are, um, and then of course there's the whole Carolingian Renaissance thing, the development of minuscule, uh, which my students are appreciative of when they learn that they didn't have to write in uh, all caps with no spaces or anything. Uh, innov- innovations like that, uh, yeah, I, I, I had not placed that mentally in the context of. His responsibilities as a Roman emperor, but I don't think that's yeah, all. I'd, I'd have to go back and check uh, how much of those projects come in in the narratives, not necessarily actually historically, but how much of those projects are placed after the coronation. Right? Uh, is mm-hmm. is the structure there? He fights, he fights, he fights. He gets coronated, and then building projects, civilizing things, maybe still some fighting, yeah. especially in Saxony, because he's never not fighting in Saxony, but. Uh, it is Charlemagne's view. It really Vietnam. is. Uh, and I, 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 kind of the, the two big things I wanted us to talk about uh, in kind of the, the last, well, I don't know how they, these, have, these have tended long, uh, but in, in the last, you know, 20 to 120 minutes, uh, uh, scholarship we've already kind of touched on, but uh, is, there, is there anything else we want to say about Alcuin or, or uh, Charlemagne founding the university, right? I mean, he, uh, David and I were talking before, he is, he is a university president and, uh, I, uh, I, as as with many university presidents, I approve and don't approve at the same time. <laughs> it's a it's 
chronologically early to use the word university. Sure. Yeah. But that's that's this is certainly in the DNA of what will eventually become. It's the more than a cathedral yeah. school, though, right? It, it's it's yeah. it's not just yeah. it's not just a learning center for future clergy. It, it, it has a broader purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and some of that purpose is college, yeah, administrative. college. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, college is 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 a word for it. Yeah, um, an academy, a you know, so, something more on those terms. Um, it's, yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it isn't just a uh, it isn't just a, a cathedral school because it's not centered on um, cathedral schools were centered on right. episcopates. Yeah, and this one is centered on a monarch. Even though it is still affiliated with right. the church, it's it's almost like a think tank <laughs> that runs some classes. I, I, I'm not trying no, to no, that's, I, I'm trying I to like think that. of a, a parallel. This is the Federalist Society um, of uh, of uh, Charlemagne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hmm. I, I I'll, I'll admit I didn't look up. I have no idea what happens to the school after he dies either. I was just wondering if there's any if there's anything today with any continuity with that, or or even that, beyond um, like anything in the sources beyond him, like or does it just he dies yeah. and whenever Alcuin dies, I don't remember if Alcuin outlives him either, like just it vanishes into the air. I could I could see that being the reality. I was saying not much of what he does survives him. So yeah, I, I could see. I mean, because Notker is writing for one of his grandsons, um, yeah. but Notker is also cloistered he's not actually at the grandson's court um it's i I don't know it's almost as if charlemagne gets kind of a node of expertise and scholarship that i don't want to say dissipates because when something dissipates it ceases to exist uh it's it's um it's (laughs) this this is relevant to my interests it's almost like he's you know got a great big piece of bread then he's scooped out a generous dollop of peanut butter and after his death, it's spread all the way across. So it's the original dollop is no longer there, but that learning is still there, right? And it's it's scattered across his entire kingdom. What interests? <laughs> isn't isn't that what he wanted though? I yeah, mean, he, he was looking for an educational renewal in in the whole kingdom, and that yeah. idea that it would um, that it would be disseminated. Exactly. That it wouldn't stay necessarily um, cooped up in one location. That right. that is a kind of success. Yeah. So, yeah, because uh, minuscule is used beyond the confines of right. his kingdom. Uh, it's wi- widely uh, widely disseminated and widely copied. It, it becomes a much easier way to record and, and, and transmit information. Um, and it's it's clear from the stories we have in these these lives that you know Charlemagne is constantly on the move. I mean, something I have to constantly work against with my students is their mental picture of a president that is sitting in an office in a capital city and occasionally leaves to do something, where Charlemagne is basically only sitting tight when it's too cold to fight. Otherwise, he's constantly on the move. He's constantly personally seeing to different parts of his kingdom, uh, and that's bringing him into contact with churchmen who don't know the Latin, uh, you know, guys who are unqualified for their positions, uh, illiterate churchmen, you know, sincere churchmen who just can't read and write, uh, and he he fixes that, or at least goes a long way to right. fixing that. Um, and I, I just love peanut butter. That's, that's... 
I mean, you're certainly allowed to love peanut butter, uh, especially being <laughs> from the South. I think that's required, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, All right, David. Could we say that education in uh, Carolingian France uh, becomes thin and stretched, like two little butters scraped over too much bread? Uh, yes. And like that, it enriches the bread, right? Make <laughs> uh, <laughs> myself hungry. Any, anything else on uh, on Charlemagne and education? Otherwise, I want to uh, move to the military stuff. That... Uh, do Do we want to briefly explain what minuscule is? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so so prior to the reign of Charlemagne, Charlemagne isn't you know their scholars debate precisely how much credit he should get for this innovation, uh, but it is certainly something that derives from that generous smearing of learning over his kingdom, um, a revision to handwriting, because uh, you know if you look at Greek monuments, Roman monuments, even Greek and Roman manuscripts, those that survive, everything is in all caps with no. Very little to no punctuation, no, no, certainly no systematized punctuation, uh, and no spaces between words. Uh, a Carolingian minuscule, in keeping with its name, minuscule, right, small letters, introduces upper and lower case and begins systematically to put spaces between words and also find other ways to indicate the beginnings of things like sentences and paragraphs and that sort of thing. So if you if you look at a a second century greek papyrus of the gospel of john it's just going to be a block of capitalized greek letters if you look at that translated into old english as in anglo-saxon england uh after the lifetime of charlemagne or you know look at the beowulf manuscript or or the text of some other poem like the wanderer you're going to see individualized words in upper and lower case uh which doesn't sound like much but somebody had to come up with it and uh it does it does help tremendously. There, there's a much lower bar to clear in order to learn to read and to learn to write. Right, and then you get to start having fights like, where do we divide the words? And yeah. I mean, presumably <laughs> they had those arguments before, but they, they take on a different tone. Uh, yeah. Anything else on uh, scholarship? The little mention that Einhard makes that... Charlemagne kept tablets under his pillow so that he could practice uh, accustoming he so that in his free any free time he could accustom his hand to form letters but because but his effort begun too late achieved little that uh, we th we think of him as uh, as being the patron of this scholarly uh, you know, renaissance, really. But he was himself uh, more of an admirer of learning right. than a learned man himself. Uh, and that those little windows into his, uh, his ambitions to emulate a life that just really wasn't in the stars for him. Hmm. Right? Like, you know, he was born to be a Frankish warlord. <laughs> but there's part of him that just wants to write things and yeah. keeping that little keeping the tablet under his pillow like that's you know that's I, I, I'm imagining that the word that the Einhard is referring to there is the the wax tablet of a schoolboy right they scratch on with a stylus and then when they filled up the the tablet with notes they just you know set it on a stove and the wax melts and levels and it's blank and they can start again um, you know just 
I'm a mat. It would be like finding out that the president of the United States isn't literate and he's got a <laughs> big fat pencil and one of those like chunky three-level ruled notebooks that you know they give kindergartners. And, and regardless of when this posts, that image will still work. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's. Uh... Oh. Let's uh, let's talk about killing people. So uh, there, there's this great description in Einhard of uh, of basically all the peoples around uh, the Danes and the Swedes. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, he's talking specifically about the northern side of, of Europe. Um, uh, the Northmen, the Slavs, the Estonians, uh, the Welatabi, whom I've never heard of before I read this, uh, and uh, how Charlemagne had to go in and and fight all of these people and, and crush them. Uh, and the penguin, this is on page 67 in the, the penguin version. Uh, and he fights in, in Central Europe uh, with the uh, the Avars and the Huns. Uh, he fights in Pannonia. Uh, he fights in, uh, uh, obviously, he fights in Italy. Uh, he fights in northern Spain. Uh, I, I think that much is true, although you guys uh, can correct me on that. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, giving too much credit to the Song of Roland. Um, and, then, uh, and then he famously fights in Saxony. What uh, uh, and Jordan, maybe this is a question uh, exclusively for you. Uh, was was Charlemagne a great general? It seems like it. Um, here's the thing: as we saw with the Merovingians, lack of success can uh, can eliminate you. <laughs> uh, it, it, he he goes out on campaign every spring. We are told for decades, and he never has to. At least as far as these accounts go, he never has to. You know. Struggle to get men to report for duty, which suggests a great deal of success. Uh, it's it, it's a hard question to answer with just like a simple yes or no because the the standards of success militarily are so different from from today. Uh, you you would think you know how long is it that he fights the Saxons? Is it like seventeen or twenty years or something something like that? I mean it's over and over and over again. So I mean. Certainly, an American general who couldn't defeat a you know barbaric enemy in 20 years would come under really really heavy criticism. But that's just that's not just not the way warfare works in this world, right? It's it's seasonal, it's small scale. Uh, the emphasis is not on annihilating the enemy; it's on you know outmaneuvering them and and um, it, not not in like the sense of modern day maneuver warfare, but just kind of wrong footing them to the point that they're going to have to concede to your demands. Uh, and until you get a final concession, which we do have an account of with the Saxons, right? Um, it, and, and in the long term, he wins, he outlasts the Saxons and he does win there. Uh, certainly he was a great King as for his battlefield prowess. I don't know that that's a question we can necessarily answer. Uh, nothing, you know, Success certainly speaks volumes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he was a brilliant tactician, if 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 that makes sense. Um, again, it just, the war aims are completely different. So where you know I've been I've been reading a book about the Army of Tennessee during the Civil War, which was just a mess, uh, badly managed and badly run. Um, the 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 lines of criticism that the historian behind that book develops against that particular army wouldn't even necessarily apply to Charlemagne's world. Um, um, I don't know. Does that, does that kind of sort of answer your question? It's, it's, 
Uh, I, I mean, I, if, if I were going to say yes or no, I'd probably say yes. Uh, again, because of the great deal of success that he wins and the loyalty of his men, which is predicated to some extent on success, uh, as well as to his position. Yeah. Um, certainly, if he was a loser, I feel like we'd have that written down somewhere. Sure. Well, at the least, he was probably a fairly able tactician. Yeah. Because unless you have the capacity for a long, sustained military campaign strategy is less of a yeah is less of a matter right yeah it's like well the weather's good and the harvest is in so let's go fight the saxons again for a few weeks exactly. see who comes on top this season yeah that is a really good distinction right. to make i'm glad you did because yeah strat- strategy is you know strategy is going to be the diplomatic side yeah. you're not you're not planning a three-year campaign in which you, you know, control certain specific, you know, river crossings uh, in order to deprive the enemy of the raw materials for their industrial heartland. I mean, you're not doing that kind of stuff. It, it is about either closing with or chasing off the enemy. So tactics is going to be a lot more important than an overall strategy. And, and you know, in modern terms, uh, Napoleon said an army marches on its stomach, right? Logistics is is a concern, but it is not a science. Uh, because the campaigning season is sh- so short, so you, you can take food with you, and you can take some on the hoof, and you can take from some from your enemy's territory. Uh, but otherwise, you're not planning for a long, drawn-out, sustained campaign. You're just uh, seeing what you can get done this year. Right, and it's yeah. not like there's much in the way of roads anyway, other than what the Romans have left behind. So yeah. your ability to get from point A to point B is never necessarily guaranteed, uh, especially if there is military right. opposition. Yeah. Uh, do we want to talk at all about what's um, going on in Saxony specifically? Uh, I mean, this is, uh, like you said, this is his Vietnam, uh, in, in that he, uh, <laughs> he he keeps going back. Uh, whether whether he should have um, maybe is a is a different question. Uh, uh, and I I don't remember if it's in these sources or if it's in the the secondary source I read. Uh, but the the argument that I I kind of vaguely recall about Charlemagne was he was out to Christianize the Saxons. Now, whether that was cynically, he just wanted to conquer them, and that's Christianization was code word for be under his rule, uh, or this was Charlemagne the devout wanting to bring some pagan people uh, under under the, the cross and not really knowing how that works, uh, or uh, uh, any any number of other options. I, I don't know, uh, but he he did keep going back year after year after year, and uh, finally, either just ground them down to where they they came to terms. Or succeeded in making the argument. Uh, what what uh, you guys have thoughts on Charlemagne and Saxony? Uh, Christopher Lee, late of Lord of the Rings, right, uh, has a heavy heavy metal album about Charlemagne, from whom he claims descent. Yeah. And he he's got a song about uh, the uh, massacre at uh, Verdun. Was was it they had it coming? Did he just steal from Chicago and? Oh no, uh, <laughs> uh, Chris, Christopher Lee is just a very frail old man singing some amazing rock lyrics with really really bad backing guitars. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to bring that up here before I forget it. Um, I don't, I don't know, and I'm not sure that we can know specifically. Uh, certainly, they're presented to us. The, the conquest and the Christianization 
are presented to us by Einhard and Notker together. You know, mm. it's <laughs> to develop this uh, to to kind of repurpose this metaphor. Uh, it's that peanut butter that comes with jelly in it, uh, <laughs> which which is which is blasphemy. Um, <laughs> it, um, just more more serious more seriously though, I I think that the conflict with the Saxons is probably that kind of like pre-existing Germanic rivalry between two neighboring peoples that Charlemagne is is at first prosecuting because it's what they do, right? You've got you know aggressors on your border. The Saxons are fighting me, so I'm going to fight them back, and I'm bigger and more powerful, so I'm going to try to, you know, eventually end this thing. Um, and the religious difference, I'm inclined to think, is at least at first incidental. Uh, but as a as a part of sealing the deal, uh, the conversion becomes a means to maintain the peace. Um, it's... It's hard to say, again, based on what we've got. It, it, it's certainly a topic that I wish we had more on to, so that we could see what exactly his, his motivations are here. But I, 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 would, I, I tend to read it as you know, the, the religious aspect of it as kind of incidental because certainly he is fighting all over the place. Uh, this just happens to be the heathen opponent that he's facing that he actually goes, to, go, goes out of his way to incorporate a conversion deal into his uh, peace agreement with, but I could be wrong. I mean, it's, it's not something I'm prepared to be dogmatic about. There were Anglo-Saxon missionaries working among mm-hmm. the Frisians first, and then later the Saxons, yep. before even Charlemagne rose to power. So while uh, the evangelization of those of peoples in that region does happen while Charlemagne is king and while he is fighting them and uh, and and those two things become you know the peanut butter and the jelly get that gets mixed together the jelly did not start get it did not start mixed with the peanut butter (laughs) 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 Um, so so that's interesting I I wonder too whether uh, it's it seems to me that Charlemagne it's hard to call Charlemagne as, as much war as he does. He has so many other interests in developing the culture of the society, the quality of life, you know, whatever you want to call it, of his people. That it's sort of hard to call to, to call him kind of a single-minded warmonger. Yeah. It's it's not as if he doesn't have any ideas of what they could do if they were at peace. <laughs> yeah, a lot of ideas about peace, and I wonder whether the evangelization of the folks to the north of him is maybe not just a way of and not a not just a way of of kind of achieving political domination over them so much as saying if we were if they were Christian too. We would have some, we would have some common ground on which to negotiate something other than just constant warfare. Yeah, right. Yeah, war, warfare is a responsibility of Charlemagne's, and as we talked about, he takes all of his responsibilities very seriously. Um, it, warfare is the most visible thing that he does, but it's, I think you're, I think that's a really good way to put it that yeah. he is 
got a wide range of interests, and sometimes the warfare kind of gets in the way. Uh, it was was Saint Boniface a missionary to the Saxons, the one who was martyred? Yeah, Boniface. Um, Boniface was a Saxon missionary. Uh, before him, uh, there was a guy named Willibrord, mm-hmm. who had yeah. who, who, been kind of a predecessor. Um, yeah. There's a a collection of from the from the fifties of uh, Anglo-Saxon missionaries and with uh, the correspondence of Saint Boniface. So uh, it's it's just kind of a, a record of, of different mission um, mission works uh, on the continent by Anglo-Saxon missionaries, and in some cases it was it was part of the Frankish um, reach into that region, uh, but that was not always the impetus. Yeah, it was not always coordinated that way. Yeah, but as a Baptist, I do want to go on record as saying that I am I am skeptical of you know sort of hounding people through a river with a sword. <laughs> I, am, I am deeply comfortable saying that most of Europe has never been properly evangelized. I, I think that's a, that is a, a reasonably Protestant thing to say. Uh, I've, but I, I do have a book and I, I hope I'm not mixing up my kind of popular level Christian uh, surveys of, of pop literature books here because there's a billion of those. But uh uh, I think it's the one called From Homer to Harry Potter, where it talks about how uh, the the two attempts at evangelizing the Saxons were Charlemagne's go in and just murder people until they convert, uh, which didn't work, and then these, these uh, missionaries who go in and uh, uh, recast the gospel in a Saxon-style story, uh, and that does work, and then they're they're using that as a springboard to talk about the, the power of story and so on. Uh, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Is it the is it the Heliand? You guys you guys will have to help me with this. It's uh, Helian is the is the name of it. There we go. The Saxon Gospel. Yeah, the Saxon Gospel. Um, I mean, just a little a little bit. Song one, the Creator's spell by which the whole world is held together, is taught to four heroes. Awesome. There were many whose hearts told them that they should begin to tell the secret runes, the word of God, the famous feats that the powerful Christ accomplished in words and deeds among human beings. Yeah, so uh, it talks about Fort Rome. Uh, Angels are king's messengers. Uh, Anyway, yeah. That's cool. it's, it's, It's neat stuff. It's uh, I, I speaking of the the missionary work that's going on at the same time as these political military conflicts. I, I one thing I wish we had talked about when we talked about Bede was the specifics of you know the the, the uh, missionary work of Augustine of Canterbury, um, which which I think we kind of hit around and never specifically talked about. But there's these interesting, almost genealogies of of faith. Right, where you've got Augustine who comes up from Rome to Anglo-Saxon England and converts people, and eventually, just within a couple of generations, they're sending missionaries to essentially distant cousins in Saxony, uh, and eventually they are sending missionaries to places like Norway and Iceland, because uh, there are German missionaries operating in Viking territory during the Viking Age. Uh, so it's, it's I don't know, I, I think that's 
Sorry? Is it Ansgar? The one I'm thinking of is Thangbrand. Okay, yeah. Um, who made it all the way out to Iceland and back, and I think he had an English associate, but I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, it. Uh, I don't know, it's just, just kind of an interesting layer of this. Uh, and t- two things that occur to me as well. Uh, one... Charlemagne, you know, Charlemagne is is several generations in from Clovis to to being Christian, right? Frank, the Frankish people are uh, probably more and more thoroughly Christianized as this is going on. Certainly by the time of, of Charlemagne, but I, I feel like the memory of paganism is probably fresh to him in a way that it can't be to any modern Christian, at least in the West, um, which I'm sure has to have has to have some effect on his relationship with the Saxons. Uh, paganism is not an anthropological concern to Charlemagne. It is something that's still very, very real. So it's, you know, this is not some kind of beautiful folk way <laughs> to him uh, that he is very, very concerned, you know, about preserving or honoring. Uh, that It's, you know, a, a real day-to-day reality to him. And, of course, it is something he's keenly aware that his his people have been saved from right if from from his perspective um and i also have to think that some of our approach to charlemagne's campaign against the saxons is colored historiographically by the crusades uh especially popular misunderstandings of the crusades uh where a lot of you know kind of edward gibbon style Enlightenment finger wagging is getting uh, projected back from you know the first and second and third crusade onto uh, Charlemagne's campaign. I, I don't I don't think he has anything as grandiose as liberating the Holy Land in mind when he's just fighting his nearest northern neighbors. Speaking of the it not being an anthropological concern, uh, I was talking about that that book of of missionaries' lives and just flipping through it because you got my you got my man, my mind running, Jordan. Um, there's a, a letter that Boniface wrote uh, to various uh, clerical types uh, back in England uh, while he was uh, in uh, among the Saxons in Germany. And uh, he writes, uh, With humble prayer we beseech you, brethren, of your charity, to remember our lowly selves in, our, in your prayers, that we may escape the cunning snares of the devil and the buffetings of evil men, that the word of the Lord may prosper and be glorified. We beg you to be instant in prayer that God and our Lord Jesus Christ, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, may convert the hearts of the pagan Saxons to the faith, may make them repent of the devilish errors in which they are entangled and unite them to the children of Mother Church, have pity on them because their repeated cry is, we are of one and the same blood and bone. Remember that we go the way of all flesh, and in hell no man praises the Lord, nor can death honor him. So, yeah, the that's that we are of the same blood and bone was also one of the motivations of the uh, the missionaries coming from. Anglo-Saxon Britain, uh, they, mm-hmm. they recognized that the Saxons were their cousins. Yeah. 
Well, we're uh, we're coming up on I think more than an hour at this point, even counting technological <laughs> errors. Uh, so, uh, any anything that we want to say in conclusion on uh, Charlemagne or uh, and or uh, further reading recommendations? Uh, one of the things we, we've kind of you know left Einhard and Notker behind a little bit to talk about the substance of Charlemagne himself. Uh, let me commend Einhard and Notker both to the reader or excuse me to the listeners again. These are worth reading. Uh, Einhard in particular is very short. I read him on like a, a thirty minute stationary bike ride at the gym uh and very, very short <laughs> a, a little dry but i mean he packs his little account full of information uh and notker is intensely entertaining um including you know i've got a i i still have basically a third grade sense of humor so there's a very funny story about um just to give you a little taste there's a very funny story about uh phrygian cloaks which become a fashion briefly among charlemagne's court uh, and apparently the Frisian cloak was cut shorter than a typical Frankish cloak. And uh, Charlemagne, you know, jokingly called them. He, he said uh, he gave orders that at this price, no one could purchase from them any but the bigger cloaks, which were at once very broad and very long because people were selling the smaller cloaks with less material for the same price. He said, what is the use of these little napkins? He asked. I can't cover myself with them in bed. When I'm on horseback, I can't protect myself from the winds and the rain. When I go off to empty my bowels, I catch cold because my backside is frozen, which uh, <laughs> made me giggle. It's a very human moment, um, and especially if you enjoy <laughs> that kind of uh, earthy humor. It also gives you a little bit of an insight into what kind of life they led on campaign, right, where your cloak is – it's your clothing, it's your it's your blanket, and it's also how you maintain a little bit of privacy when you uh, cover your feet. Um let me also recommend the Song of Roland, which is legendary and is going to come later, but it is tied to Charlemagne. Um, and, but it is a ripping good read. I'll, uh, I'll be a little surprised if it's not on the core curriculum at some point. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of Boniface and Roland and Charlemagne and all of this, a uh, book that I read back at the beginning of the year that has some things to say about this is Tom Holland's Dominion. Uh, which kind of made a big splash in uh, Christian circles when it was released because Holland is at least an agnostic, if not an atheist, but has come around a great deal to seeing that as in his own – the way he puts it, everything that he appreciates about Western civilization is kind of the result of the church. Uh, and the book Dominion is him kind of grappling with that and looking at the prehistory of Christianity, the context in which Christianity arose and how it – changed the you know the roman empire dramatically and then uh, the passages through the middle ages are some of the most interesting as he looks at the the tensions within christianity being worked out through things like missionary work and the conquest of english kings uh and um it's it's a really brilliantly written and structured work that comes all the way down to the present i don't agree with everything in it but it is really really brilliantly written and worth your while and charlemagne figures into it so there you go uh i'll uh, I'll, I'll recommend uh again the the primary sources einhard and, and, and not Kerr, both they're both uh, good short reads and available in penguin so they're affordable uh, i'll also recommend uh matthias uh becher becker i'm not sure how you say his last name uh his biography of charlemagne um it's just a good kind of solid work of scholarship and uh uh it is uh short and and accessible, but as, as far as I know, it's still a good solid, like it's it's scholar scholarly. Um, 
David, uh, what do you got? Well, first, not cur super fun. Uh, I, I do want to tip my hat, uh, especially to him, but also Einhard. And one aspect of Charlemagne that we haven't really uh, said a lot about, we, we talked about him as a as an educational reformer, but the ways, especially in Notker's version of, of events, Charlemagne seems to constantly have his eye on the church, especially on making sure that uh, the overseers, the bishops, the episcopos, <laughs> are actually fulfilling their tasks as uh, regional pastors of pastors. Uh, he, he has a real concern with appointing people or making sure that people are appointed uh, as bishops um, that are not just going to do it for the, for the sake of social influence or wealth, uh, which is already a major factor um, in, the, in these stories. So the idea that the, it's not just the church watching the throne and making sure that it doesn't uh, it doesn't cross its its you know cross its bounds you know it, the, the river stays between the banks, but also in in Ocker's version the crown is watching the church and in some sense holding it uh, holding it accountable to continue to be the church. Um, that that I thought is a, a really interesting vision. Um, the Song of Roland you mentioned Jordan and downstream from the Song of Roland. Uh, is a long tradition of uh, parallel to the King Arthur stories of Charlemagne and his paladins, uh, the warriors of his court who become kind of famous in their own right. Those work out in several different, you know, there's several different works that kind of develop the adventures of the paladins. Uh, but one that comes toward the end of the tradition is called Orlando Furioso or the madness of Orlando, or the madness of Roland, um, in which he's fallen in love with this princess from Cathay, <laughs> for reasons, and is just insane for most of the story. Um, it is bonkers, it is Monty Python before Monty Python, and it is a big inspiration for Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, and it is a darn good read. Nice. So... Uh, yeah, I, I recommend Orlando Furioso. If I remember rightly, I think it's the Penguin translation that is especially re good and readable. But nice. if if uh, you have a bibliography in the show notes, Coil, I'll give you the information for that. Yeah, we will try to do something something along those lines. Um, yeah, let me. I, uh, let me throw in one more. I, I didn't prepare any kind of recommended reading, and, and so now things are just occurring to me. Uh, Christopher Dawson was a major um, shaper of sort of Christian historical imagination in the middle of the 20th century. Um, he had a very, very good book. Oh, nice. Oh, Oxford World Classics. Uh, dear listener, uh, David is showing us which edition he's talking about. Look for that in the show notes. Uh, but Christopher Dawson had a very good book called The Making of Europe, which is part of a kind of loose series of histories that sort of thematically can take the reader. If you read them in any kind of order, you know, topical, chronological order, you have you kind of a history of, of civilization in Europe. But his book, The Making of Europe, 
is specifically about what Coyle would call the Dark Ages, uh, from the kind of collapse of Rome to through to the end, more or less, of the Viking Age, uh, and you know, approaching the First Crusades. Uh, I also read that back in the spring, and it is it's a little dated. Um, it's interesting because it's it was written just about the time Tolkien was going to like have this kind of revolution in how people read Beowulf. So Beowulf appears, but it's put to what looks like really weird uses, and it's, it's reflecting kind of older scholarship on the poem. Uh, but he has a very, some very, very good material on Charlemagne and his place in the history of the Franks, his place in the history of Europe more broadly, and especially uh, a lot of good attention to his his re- relationship with the church and his uh, uh, educational reforms. So definitely check that out. Yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll come back, I'm sure, to Charlemagne and the church. I, I will want to at some point do an episode on church and state in the Middle Ages, uh, including things like investiture uh, and including things like councils. Uh, so uh, we, we didn't mention it uh, because it is not in either of the sources we read for today, but Charlemagne actually calls a church council uh, in response to What's 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 the last of the uh, the ecumenical the seventh is it Nicaea second Nicaea or second Constantinople I can never remember which is which uh, it's the one that says you should worship statues right uh, uh, that's okay. the, the, yeah, the yeah. one that comes comes from back east well news of this hits hits uh, Western Europe and Charlemagne says well that's not right and calls the Council of Frankfurt uh, which says no you you shouldn't worship you know statues so he's he's mixed up uh-huh. in theology too so Charlemagne uh, was an iconoclast. And it, uh, not to the extent that some of the Byzantine emperors were. Like I don't know that he was out smashing stuff, but okay. But 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 he did he didn't swing quite as far as the reversal of that did. Right. He's not he's not uh, Leo the Asarian or uh, the the Calvinists in Geneva uh, breaking okay. things. But he he is saying hey, you know there there is a second commandment and it matters right. Uh, uh, which uh, which ends up not being the official position of the, the Western or the Eastern church, but the council is held. I mean, it, 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 it does come to some kind of decision. So uh, again, all of that gets mixed in there. And, and uh, uh, over the next few hundred years, uh, this stuff will, will be hammered out uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll definitely come back to that. Uh, well, that's, that's uh, I don't know if that's a good place to start, but uh, again, we've been going at this a while, so we'll go ahead and stop there. And uh, yeah, we'll pick it up next time with the Byzantines. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast, or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. Is there not a white night upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I shall doubt for a hero till the end of the night. I pray he behave, bring it a With a wit that will thrill and excite, thrill and excite.